So as uh, Pastor Trent said, I'm Nate. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm the apprentice pastor here at Community. Um, yeah, it's a good morning to be worshiping with a part of the body of Christ, isn't it? If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been, we've been walking through this gospel of Mark, right? We're on this 14-week journey through the gospel, a journey that will take us through the deserts of Palestine, that will take us along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, take us into Jerusalem, Nazareth, Bethlehem. Now, to catch up a little bit, this is where we are. Recently, Jesus... He's kind of concluded this whirlwind tour of northern Israel. Okay, last week in Mark 4, he astonishes his disciples by calming the storm. And then right after that, at the beginning of Mark 5, he, he steps into the ten cities of the Gerasenes and he casts out a legion of demons or a demon named Legion. doesn't matter at this point. He's casting them out. He casts them into a herd of pigs and they run off a cliff. This is kind of where we are as of last week. And I want you to think about last week real quick. Because last week, Pastor Trent said, do we want Jesus to save us or do we want Jesus to be our Lord? That was the big question, and that's a hard one, right? That's a tough one to think about. Because it's yes and yes, and then when you think about it again, it's yes and uh, maybe. If you were here last week, I want you to consider what you heard last week, kind of part A. And today, part B. These two passages are related, and so are the messages this morning. So if you haven't heard part A, now would be the time to stand up, go grab a cup of coffee, watch part A on the internet, and then come back in. <laughs> I'm kidding. The remainder of Mark 5, which we weren't able to get to last week, Jesus surprises a diseased woman. They're, they're in a crowd, and she reaches out, and she touches the hem of his cloak, and she's healed, Right? And then he stops at the home of Jairus, whose daughter just died moments before Jesus arrives. They're weeping. Jesus says, why are you crying? He says, she's dead. And he says, she's not dead. She's asleep. Little girl, come on, let's go. Wake up. He commands her to wake up. And, and as we all know, uh, death doesn't stop Jesus. It never has. It never will. And the little girl is alive again. It says in verse 42 of chapter 5, it says that they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Now, those words really fit for the stories we've had thus far in Mark, don't they? We see people overwhelmed and amazed, and we are the same way. We're overwhelmed and we're amazed. We've witnessed Jesus do amazing things in Mark. And we can understand the overwhelmed an amazed feeling. But as we begin in Mark 6, we meet some people who begin amazed, but they don't stay that way. Mark 6, just a few verses. We'll begin with verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus left there, there being Jairus' house, and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. I love that. Jesus preaches, and many were amazed. Not all, many. 
Some people didn't even like Jesus' preaching. That makes me feel a lot better about myself. <laughs> Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he's been given? And he even does miracles. Isn't he, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, I want you to know, we're going to talk, we're, I'm going to say the word offense a lot, and we're going to finish this passage, but offense here also means displeased. Okay, it means offense the way we understand it, but it also means displeased. So the people were displeased with him. And Jesus says to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Lord, we thank you for your word. Show us the way that we should walk in it. Not that we, live, that we leave here more informed, but we leave here more transformed and more conformed into who you are, Jesus. And just as many, many preachers have, pre- have, have prayed before and many preachers will, will pray again, Holy Spirit, fill all that I am for your glory. May I think your thoughts, may I speak your words, and your words alone. Amen. Jesus and offensive. Not two words that we often put together when we're talking about anyone other than the Pharisees, right? We're familiar with the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and the lawmakers being unhappy and offended by Jesus, but people from his hometown, it's a little different. This is a different story. Now, we don't know necessarily what prompted Jesus' return home, but I do know this. Jesus returned a different man than he left. Right? Jesus was a carpenter. He was a gifted young man, but he was just a young man. Now he comes back, and his wisdom and his power is evident, and it's, it's, it's stuff they've never seen before. He has 12 guys following him around. He's a rabbi now. He's got students. He's got disciples this is a very different Jesus than the one that they used to know. And so when, when Jesus, as rabbi, comes back home, he's invited to speak in the synagogue on the Sabbath. We understand this. We, we do the same thing here when... That's my fault. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> wow. You know, I've always wanted to do that. The timing was never right, and I thought, here it is, Lord. <laughs> yeah. See, that's, that's an answer to prayer right there. <laughs> All right, where was I? Oh, yeah, Jesus preaching. He's, he's a rabbi now, and he's invited to preach in the synagogue, and we do the same thing, too. When we can, when there's opening in the schedule. I mean, here we have a lot of preachers, and so it doesn't happen as often, but the church is known for this. When, when a pastor who is connected to their church 
or a missionary who's connected to this church uh, is able to come back to his hometown, we want them to speak. Teach us. We miss you. We want to know what you know. We want to hear what you've been doing. That's what happens with Jesus. And when he does preach, oh boy, does Jesus preach. Many were amazed. Not, they didn't just like it. They were amazed. Blown away. They can't get their minds around who this Jesus is. But where did he get such wisdom and power? This Jesus, this, this carpenter. Now, when we think of carpenter, we, we think of someone who works with wood, right? And, and it doesn't matter what they work, work with, but, but carpenter here in Jesus' time actually is referring to a common laborer. I mean, yeah, he may have worked with stone, but this is a common laborer. This, this, his role was normal. There was nothing wrong with it, but it was normal. How could this Jesus, this common laborer, come back and speak with such authority and such wisdom and power and there's miracles How does that happen? Now he's a famous rabbi. Of course, when a small town has someone who's left and made a big comeback, they'd celebrate, right? They'd be amazed, right? But somewhere in verses 2 and 3, everything changes. And what we see is we see the people who are from Jesus' hometown, we see their amazement mix with their familiarity with him and it produces offense. See, it's important to know that the social system of the day was fixed. What I mean by that is if you were born a Jewish child, your status was fixed permanently. Jesus was born to a carpenter, so Jesus would always be a carpenter. The words that we use to speak to our children, um, you can be anything you want when you grow up. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. A Jewish child never heard this in the first century. Jesus was a common laborer, and they knew this. They had that understanding. Culturally, this was ingrained in them. This is who Jesus is. So how does he have all this wisdom and power? And in verse 2, the people ask, where did this man get these things? And the message paraphrases it this way. The message we were reading from the NIV today, the message paraphrases it this way. I think they do a great job of communicating the tone. It says, who does he think he is? Amazement, familiarity, offense. You see, the identity of Jesus is this consistent issue in Mark. We hear the opinions of rulers and and religious leaders and disciples and family members as to who they think Jesus is. And that's the question that's getting asked to us time and time again. Who do you say that Jesus is? So let's look at the opinion of those in his hometown. Who do they say Jesus is? Right there in verse 3, it says, isn't he the carpenter, the common laborer? Wisdom and power, who does he think he is? What does he think he is, the Messiah or something? You kidding me? A common laborer coming back here with all that. There's no way he's the Messiah. I've worked on the job with him. His hands are as rough as mine. There's no way. Their amazement is tempered and poisoned by their familiarity. He's just a carpenter. 
And then to add insult to injury, and isn't he the son of Mary? And you're thinking, Nate, why is that offensive? Why is that insult to injury? Well, let me tell you. In that culture, you didn't call somebody the son of their mother. This was a patriarchal society. If you, if you referenced anybody, you kids are cute. <laughs> if you referenced somebody by their parent, you referenced the father. So this would have been Joseph's son, not Mary's son. On top of all of that, these people, they're also bringing up gossip from their past, aren't they? Shh, hey, isn't that the boy of Joseph and Mary? Yeah, the boy of Joseph and Mary. You remember? Remember way back when? They weren't even married yet. Remember the census they had to go? He thought about divorcing her quietly, I heard. But... <clears throat> She says it was immaculate conception. Okay, Mary. Isn't he the son of Mary? A carpenter. Possibly illegitimate. As the Messiah? Not likely. Not in their eyes, at least. Not from their cultural understanding. Their worldview, their cultural bias, couldn't fathom such a thing. And Jesus' identity is the issue here. I don't know if you noticed, but they never questioned that wisdom or power that they saw. Those are evident. Can't argue those. They're questioning who he is. I mean, it even goes on to say they know his brothers and they list them. This is his sisters are right here with us. We know this man. We know who he is. And because of this familiarity, that amazement that they originally felt and witnessed and, and were experiencing, he's now tainted. It's been poisoned. And so Jesus becomes offensive. You know, we want Jesus to come back, right? Like, that's a big, that's a big thing. We, we want the second coming. We want his full kingdom to, to be fulfilled. And I say that meaning because, because the kingdom is here and now. <laughs> but we want kingdom fulfillment. We want the second coming. We welcome the day of judgment because we were judged 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> but first century Jews... They weren't looking for a second coming. They were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They were looking for the coming of the Christ to come with wisdom and power and to destroy Roman Gentiles and exalt the nation of Israel. That's the Messiah they want. But that's not Jesus. Jesus isn't regal or royal. Rather, he's holy and humble. He's not destroying Gentiles. He's, de he's not destroying Gentiles. He's deploying mercy. He doesn't exalt the nation of Israel. Instead, he demands repentance. It's offensive because even if he could be the Messiah, he's not the Messiah they want. Verse 4, Jesus says to them that only in his hometown and amongst relatives is a prophet without honor. Now, yes, that means is the prophet not glor glorified? Is, is he not respected? Yes, but it also means is a prophet not recognized? He's unrecognizable. And Jesus calls this out. He calls out the familiarity. He says, only with people who know me will I be unrecognizable. It's the familiarity that's the problem. It's the people who know me that won't see me. These people can't see past the truth that they think they know. Jesus is a carpenter, son of Mary. There's no way. 
he could be the Messiah. And it says because of this, that Jesus was unable to perform any miracles other than laying his hands on a few people and healing them, which is miraculous. But he didn't do much in comparison to what has been happening in Mark. And you're thinking, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Did these people actually, did they subdue God's power? No. No, they didn't subdue God's power. It says, Jesus says that he was amazed at their unbelief, at their lack of faith. See, we've heard that uh, faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains, right? <clears throat> now, that's very generally speaking about that. But we, we understand that. We've heard that, right? This is the exact opposite. What's happening here isn't a little bit of faith that squashes miracles. This is no faith that squashes miracles. This unbelief doesn't mean a little bit. It means zero. I want to be clear on that. This doesn't say that if you don't have enough faith, then miracles won't happen. No, no, no. This is saying there is no faith, so miracles didn't happen. Nate, why did miracles not happen? Well, this is my experience, or this is my understanding. Miracles didn't happen because they have zero faith. They're not going to credit Jesus with a miracle anyway, are they? They didn't credit him with the wisdom and power. They said, no way. So if they're not going to credit him with a miracle, why would a miracle take place? Because miracles, signs and wonders, these things take place to increase our faith, to put God's glory on display, to express his grace, his mercy, and his love. So if Jesus performs this and there's zero faith, God doesn't get credit for it anyway. So why? And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Nothing happens. There's nothing to see here. He's just the carpenter. Move along. And that's exactly what Jesus did. From here, he leaves his hometown and he goes from village to village preaching and teaching, performing miraculous signs and wonders. Amazement combined with familiarity produces offense. People cannot see past the truth that they think they know. And so there's nothing to see here. Move along. It's easy for us. Well, I don't want to put this on you. This is on me, and I'm assuming it's on you as well. It's easy for me to read this passage and gloss over it. That's actually kind of a confession. It's easy for, it was easy for me to read this passage and gloss over it and say, well, that's not me. I believe in Jesus. I believe, I believe, I have faith. I know that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior, the King, and he is the Lord. But the truth is, <clears throat> Jesus, just like he did to people in his hometown, Jesus offends us all eventually. Jesus eventually offends us all. As you read the Gospels, and Jesus gets around people, eventually they're offended by him, even the disciples. And it's the same for us today. Now I know what you're thinking, Nate, I'm not offended by Jesus. I'm not displeased with Jesus. Okay. Okay. This is what I mean. We love that Jesus paid our debt to sin, but we don't always like that he calls us to a higher standard and to go and sin no more. We love that, that God's word, the Bible, the scripture is alive, right? But we get offended when Jesus tells us to adhere to all of its teachings and all of his commands that are in it. Because his word that we love so much is a double-edged sword. 
We love God's providence. But we get offended when God says, don't worry about anything. Oh, yeah, and by the way, if you love money more than you love me, I never knew you. We love that God made us all in his image. The image of God, he made them both man and woman. But some of us get offended when our desires don't line up with the way that God, that God made us the creator. We love that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. But we don't like it when we have to, to forgive those who really hurt us. It's great to not be condemned, but I want to do my condemning. Treat others as you want to be treated is one thing, but love your enemies and bless those who persecute you? That requires humility. And you know what the offense is there? Our pride. That offends our pride. This is, this is a new one for me, where I've been offended over the last six months. I love, and we love, right, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it's hard. It's hard to accept the fact that God wants us here and now, present time, present place, to bring his people together, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the black and the white, the, the, the male and the female. Bring them together. Why? Because this is God's glory and these are God's people. He says, come together in unity to bow and profess of, the, of your God's glory together. On earth as it will be in eternity. And that's hard because we look through a lens of culture. We have bias and prejudice, both implicit and otherwise. Sometimes we don't even know they're there. And getting outside of our cultural and hierarchical worldview is hard and can be offensive. We think we know the truth. And sometimes when we find out that's not 100% truth, we get offended. The truth can be difficult. Let me give you another example, and this is one that I think more of us can relate to. I do not want to believe that anyone would go to hell. I don't want to believe it. Does that make it true? No. In the scriptures, it is very clear. There will be hearts that are hardened, that never turn to our Lord, and they will experience separation for, for eternity from the one who is love. It's real. As much as I want to believe that everyone will be saved someday, it's not what we're told. Yes, God is love. Yes, he made us. Yes, Jesus saves us. The Holy Spirit is nudging us, calling us back to him. Jesus stands and knocks, and no one should have to go to hell, but that's not reality. See, Jesus challenged, he challenges what we hold dear. He challenges our, our worldview. He challenges our understanding. And the gospel of Jesus can be offensive. Even to those who know him. But I don't want you to get hung up on this as a bad thing. This isn't a bad thing. Being offended in our culture today is, is a bad thing, right? Everyone's offended at something sometime, somewhere. You've probably been offended five times in this message already. I'm kidding, four times. The truth is, Jesus is offensive because he is righteous. And we are sinful by nature. We have a selfish focus. We have a prideful ignorance. And those things in us, they're always going to push back on righteousness. 
We were made to be in a relationship with God. We fell away. We now have a sinful nature. And God is 100% righteous, 100% holy. We needed Jesus to reconnect us, right? So in our very nature, we push holiness away. We are two magnets flipped around. So, of course, holiness, righteousness, truth is going to be offensive at times. The problem is, most of us in here, we've been amazed with Jesus. We've come to know him. Many of us in here have accepted him as our Savior. We go to church, we've heard the stories, and we've become familiar with this man named Jesus. And we confuse our familiarity with 100% truth. And we can't see past it. And when this happens, Jesus looks more like us than we look like Jesus. But this is exactly why we have Jesus to begin with. Because God knows our brokenness. He sees us in all of our misery. He knows that we need a prophet to speak the truths of God over us and to us, no matter how hard they are for us to hear. We need a priest to walk with us, to serve as the bridge between brokenness and righteousness, no matter how much we don't deserve it. We need a king who has supreme authority over all things, who will rule with grace and truth, not just now, but for eternity. And that is exactly who Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, our prophet, our priest, our king. Because we don't need a savior to tell us that we're right. The world does a great job of this already. Let me give you a few examples. Burger King says you can have it your way. Nike says just do it. Apple says think different. L'Oreal says because you're worth it. Reebok says I am what I am. And Dollar Shave Club says you will shave time and shave money. Wait, that one doesn't make sense. (laughs) But you understand what I'm saying? We don't need a God to tell us how good we are. The world does a pretty good job of that. Because honestly, if our God is going to tell us how good we are, if our good, good father is going to tell us how good, good we are, there's a song that I like right now, and you're probably not going to know, but one of the lyrics is, uh, if God's not good, I must have missed something, and if I'm what's good, I must have missed something. That's where we are. We don't need a Savior to tell us how great we are. Last week, we heard a quote from C.S. Lewis, and this is just, I wasn't looking for C.S. Lewis quotes, but this, this works. Hear what C.S. Lewis says about this particular issue. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And church, this is us. We are far too easily pleased with our familiarity with Jesus. And then when we see that he's trying to give us more, a holiday at the sea, we get offended because it's, it's outside of our understanding. We can't be satisfied with the Jesus we know because if we can know Jesus, he's pretty small. 
Jesus is calling us out of the slums that we settle for. These slums, these lifestyles, these behaviors, these thoughts, these beliefs that we've, dece- that, that we've deceived ourselves in thinking are palaces. But when he looks at our slum and says, you're in a slum. Don't do it that way. Don't live that way. Don't think that way. Don't believe that way. That's not right theology. We look at it and say, this, you call this a slum? This is a palace, and we're offended. But Jesus has so much more for you than you have for yourself. We've been amazed by Jesus, and we've become familiar, but not familiar in the good way that I look more like him. We've become familiar where he starts looking like me. And church, that's why I'm thankful to be a part of a church, community church. I'm thankful to be a part of this church that stands up and says, here's the truth, period. And I hope you're proud of that too. And we need to continue to be that church, and I know we will. But when I say continue to be that church, I mean that we need to go into our workplaces, into our homes, into our communities, and say, this is Jesus. This is who he is, and this is what he offers for you. And the Jesus you know, that's only half the story at best. He's got so much more for you. So much more for you. And yes, you're going to be offended and it's going to hurt, but it's because he loves you. And he's drawing you into deeper intimacy. He's drawing you into love, love, love. I would sing it, but I'm terrible. Don't be satisfied with your familiarity with Jesus. He's our prophet, our priest, and our king. He's infinite and eternal. He's all good and all wise. He's all gracious. He is humanity's sacrifice. So seek him. Search his word. Find him. And if you're offended, that's okay. Because unlike those in his hometown, we don't have zero faith. His word will continue to inspire. The miraculous will continue to be shown. For our faith to increase and his glory to be on display. Remember, Jesus... He may not always seem like the king and the Lord that you want, but he is always the king and the Lord that we need. Always. Whether we can fathom it or not. Pray with me. Father, we trust you. And I'm not just saying those words. Uh, we, we believe those words. And where we don't believe those words, lead us into it, Spirit. Empower us. <laughs> yes, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. <laughs> yeah, that's where we are, Father. Jesus, we thank you for the truth that you are our sacrifice, that you are our Savior, that you are the Lord. And you know what? We're broken, so we're going to be offended by your truth from time to time. And we thank you and we praise you for your patience with us. May we, be, may we be a light in this community for you. As broken as, and as dim as we may feel sometimes, may remember it's you. It's you that's shining through us. I pray these things in your son's strong and tender name. Amen. It's my favorite. It's my favorite benediction in the word comes from Jude, and it's for us this morning. To him who is able to keep you 
from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. Have a blessed week. There's only one road that leads you home And the truth was a cave